last night, I spoke last night on the same thing, uh, same talk, topic as tonight, and I actually asked people to put their hand up for this question, but I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up because um, apparently well, people in church are more honest than the general population, so <laughs> I wasn't quite prepared for the response that I got. But I uh, want to ask you this morning, think about this morning, how many of you um, would say or would consider yourselves to be financially wealthy or financially rich. So don't put your hand up because I don't want to center anybody out. But in North America, if, if, if we were kind of representative of North America and Canada in general, you'd be pretty hard pressed to find anybody who would admit that they were actually well off, that they were financially wealthy, they were financially rich. Um, most categories of people, uh, football fans, will admit, oh yeah, I'm a football fan. Uh, I'm, I'm for the Broncos or who else is playing? That's all you need. Apparently, that's all you need is the Broncos. I'm a Leafs fan. I'm sorry if you are. I'm a musician. I'm, you know, I'm a Christian. Um, I'm a woman. I'm a man. I'm a nurse. I'm willing to admit that I'm a nurse. But most people will not admit if they're wealthy. They won't admit that they're wealthy. Um, and as a matter of fact, there's, there's been several kind of surveys done by Gallup, the big research poll, that kind of um, illustrate this point. So one of them, they asked, uh, they asked a bunch of people who had salaries that ranged from like 35000 up to who knows how much, how much they would need to be able to consider themselves wealthy. And uh, the, average, the average that they said they would need was $150,000, which probably for most of us would be at least double what most of us would make on an annual basis. Maybe some of you make more, but that was the average. And some of them would say more, some of them would say less. But when they broke it down by categories, what people said was this. If they looked at people who earned $35,000 a year, all of them said that in order to be considered wealthy, they would need to make at least 75000 so double what they currently make. But then they went and they asked the people who made $75,000 how much they would need to make and if they considered themselves wealthy. And first off, even though those people that made 35000 said 75000 I'd be wealthy, the people that actually made 75000 do you think they considered themselves wealthy? No, no. They needed at least 150000 to consider themselves wealthy. And it just, that trend kept on continuing. So they asked people if they, who made 150000 if they considered themselves wealthy. No, we need at least 300000 and, and the trend just kind of continued on from there. So that was kind of an interesting trend. Um, Uh, there was another. There was actually another poll that was done, and it was in Money Sense magazine. I don't know if any of you read Money Sense magazine, but apparently, based on this poll, it's wealthy people that read Money Sense magazine. And they asked their readership if, uh, if what, how much money they would need in the bank and liquid assets they could quickly turn to cash, um, how much they would need in order to consider themselves secure for the rest of their lives and for their retirement. Can anybody guess how much the readers of Money Sense magazine? on average, said they would need. I'm sure if anyone here reads Money Sense, they wouldn't say this, but how much do you think? 500,000? A million? Two million? Five million. It was actually five million dollars. So they could have, you know, the, most people in the general population say, you know, need between one and two million to retire and be financially, you know, be, be set. Uh, readers of Money Sense magazine said no. It needs to be not three million, not four, 4.5. $5 million. But I bet you, I can almost guarantee you, if those people who had $5 million were asked, 
are you, are you set for life now? Are you wealthy? They would say no. They would say no. Why is that? The, your lifestyle, exactly. Now, um, <laughs> most, most people, we're, we're, we're pretty fortunate in where we live. We live in, in North America. And average salary would probably be between somewhere between $35,000 and $60,000, which is, if you consider that, compare that to the rest of the world, if you make $35,000, you're in the top 4% of wealthy people in the world. Pretty staggering, eh? If you make $50,000, you're in the top 1% of earners in the world. And so, by all standards in the world, probably most of us would actually need to say, we're, we're pretty well off. So, why, uh, why all the stats on wealth? If, uh, the reason, obviously, I'm going to talk this morning about, about money and finances. And before I do, I just want to make a disclaimer that um, I have no clue if any of you actually give to Kingsway, and if you do, how much you give to Kingsway. And um, I'm not making a pitch for you to give more, at, uh, give more to the church. Because I believe that what the New Testament teaches about finances and what the New Testament teaches about giving is equally as much about our relationship with God as it is about being able to fund the mission of the church, if not more. And uh, one of the dangers of wealth, and one of the reasons that um, many of Jesus' teachings were based on wealth, is because he wanted us to make sure that we had our priorities straight when it comes to finances. So I know, I know, I know now that I said I'm going to talk about money, probably most of you have actually tuned out already because I know that in the church there have been televangelists who have begged for money and there have been certain church groups who have asked for money and it turns out that they, were, they, they weren't using it appropriately and maybe misappropriating money. And so people kind of, the church kind of gets a bad rap when it comes to talking about money. And uh, oftentimes, I think that we think money isn't necessarily a spiritual issue, that money is more of a personal, private issue. You know, we don't necessarily go out and, and tell our friends how much we make. We don't tell people how much we give. And so many times we think of, of finances and of giving as a, as a personal issue. And so when we're, while we're quite happy to hear teachings from, from, from the Word about marriage or about faith or about prayer or about... Um, about servanthood, sometimes, you know, we, we tune out the teachings that, that, uh, that talk about giving. But um, the reality is that Jesus talked a lot about money. He actually talked probably more about money than any other topic that he talked about. Jesus, um, when he taught, he gave parables, which a parable is basically a short story to make a point. And in, in, the, in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus actually, uh, he, he gave 36 parables. He used 36 parables to teach. And about half of those were actually directed towards teaching about finances or money or possessions. So clearly, <clears throat> finances and money and possessions were significant to Jesus, and he thought it was an issue, a spiritual issue that we should, uh, we should be aware of. In the Bible, there's 500 verses that, are, that talk about prayer. There's less than 500 verses that talk about faith. Can you guess how many verses talk about possessions or wealth or money? 1,000? It's actually 2,000. So twice as many as talk about prayer and faith together. 
I don't think that that's a coincidence. I don't think it's a coincidence that there's so many um, verses about finances and possessions in Scripture. And so tonight, or this morning, sorry, I want to talk about the importance of money and its spiritual significance in our lives. And so what I want to do, first of all, is just kind of most of us, if, if you've been in the church before, you've probably heard of, of um, the idea of tithing, giving, which is basically giving 10% of your income. And so I want to talk about kind of where that came from. And the first mention of tithing in the Old Testament um, was it, when Abraham, he went out and he conquered a nation, and he, when, they, when they, the Israelites conquered a nation, they would take all, everything that that nation had, and they would call that the spoils of war. And when Abraham came back with the spoils of war, um, a king from a city named Melchizedek, who was also a priest, came out and greeted him, and, and Abraham gave 10% of the spoils of war to Melchizedek. Um, and so apparently it was, it was kind of a, it wasn't just a Christian notion at the time of tithing, or a, a, a God-like notion of tithing. It was something that seemed to be kind of, of common in that culture. So then, um, skip forward 400 years, and we have God giving Moses the commandments to actually tithe. And the reason God gave Moses the commandments to tithe is because when the Israelites went into the promised land, there was, there was, uh, there was 12 tribes, and 11 of those tribes were given land so that they could raise her, uh, uh, crops and they could raise animals on that land. And so they could sustain themselves and their tribes. But the Levites who were responsible for the temple and the priests who were responsible for the spiritual well-being of the nation were not given land. And so they had no way to care for themselves. And so those other 11 tribes were given the command to give 10% of what they grew and 10% of, what the, of the animals that they raised to the Levites and to the priests so that they could survive. And so that's where the, the initial um, notion of tithing came from, or the command of tithing came from. And then actually over and above that, there were certain um, celebrations throughout the year where the Israelites were commanded to give another 10%. There was actually two others. So they'd give 10% of their tithe all the time, and then 10% at another time, and 10% at another time. And even over top of that, they were required to give alms to care for the poor and the needy. And so you think about the tithe, and we often think, you know, we're, we're pretty uh, stretched to give 10%. The Israelites were actually giving somewhere between 10 and probably 30% of their income to help support the needy and the people that looked after them spiritually. So then we fast forward another thousand years or so, and we come to, the, uh, to the, the prophet Malachi towards the end of the Old Testament, and we're getting close to the time when Christ came and brought a new covenant. And what had happened is over time, the Israelites had, had kind of, you know, they'd let the Jewish laws slide, and they, you know, kind of given up on their tithing practices. And God said to Malachi, tell the, tell the Jewish people that I'm disappointed with them in their tithing. Tell them I'm actually angry with them. I'm a jealous God, and the what show, the tithing that shows their commitment to me, they're giving somewhere else. And, and I'm not really happy with that. And he, so he said, he, Malachi actually told the people that and challenged them, see how God will bless you when you start giving your tithe again. And so that is kind of the last mention of tithing in the Old Testament. Then we jump forward another 400-ish or so years to the New Testament, and Jesus and Paul and uh, some of the other apostles that, that wrote in scriptures and taught, and there's actually only three or four mentions of tithing in the New Testament. And it's never given as a teaching that the, 
New Testament or the, the New Covenant, the people that follow Jesus should actually tithe. He mentioned it in reference to the Pharisees because they were giving herbs and they were giving spices as a part of their tithe, but they were just, that's all they were giving, and they were being kind of stingy about what it was they were giving. And he said, you'd be better off to show mercy and to show love to the people around you in, in addition to your tithe. And so he mentions it, but it's not really a, a teaching for the people. It's more of a backhanded um, critique of the Pharisees. And then there's a couple other mentions of it, but it's always in reference to how the Israelites were required to give in the Old Testament. And so <clears throat> there's actually nothing, no teaching in the New Testament, zippo, nada, about tithing. So then what does, <clears throat> excuse me, what does the New Testament teach about giving? Jesus and the writers of the New Testament gave kind of a number of basic principles about, uh, about giving. And first off, I want, to, I want us to think about um, how Jesus interpreted the Old Testament laws and commands that he gave. So you think about when he was, um, when he was giving the Sermon on the Mount, which was kind of his, his penultimate teaching. It was like, kind of like the, the big teaching where he taught a whole bunch of people some of the basic laws, and he said, this is what the laws mean to you. And he said things like this in Matthew 21 or two, sorry, 21, 22. He said, you've heard it said you shall not murder. But I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what. If you're even angry with your brother or sister, you're in danger. You're in danger of judgment. You're in danger of the fires of hell. What he's saying is, the law says this, but what you need is a change of heart and a change of mind and a change of attitude because what I require goes above the law. He said things like, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you even look at someone lustfully, you're in danger. So the law said, don't commit adultery. Jesus said, if you even look at someone of the opposite sex with lust or think of them wrongly, you're in danger. Think about the change of heart and the change of mind and the change of attitude that that requires and how much above the law that takes us. He said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, the command is here. What Jesus requires of us is here. Requiring complete change of heart and of mind and of attitude. So Jesus goes through several basic Old Testament laws and he says, don't stop there. I've called you to a higher standard. And the standard that I've set for you goes beyond, way beyond what I expected of my people in the Old Testament, way beyond the Old Covenant. What it calls us to is not rules-based living. It's heart-based. It's about the relationship that's between us, the relationship that I have with you. And that's how it, that's how it should be with giving. And he doesn't teach specifically about giving in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. But if we take the principles that he gave, that he's called us to a higher standard than the law, then that should affect how we look at our money and how we, how we, uh, how we look at giving as well. And so now for the, the rest of what I want to talk about is kind of some practical principles that we can pull out of the New Testament on giving. And you're kind of, kind of going to go through the, the who, what, when, where, and why of giving so that it's really kind of a practical take-home thing. So most people have the, the attitude towards money that uh, I earned it, it's in my hand, so it's mine to do with what I please. And the reality is, if, uh, if we believe what the Bible teaches is truth, then we have to acknowledge 
that what I earned is mine to keep isn't necessarily true. As followers of Jesus, we've, we have to come to terms with the fact that we truly own nothing, that everything that we have comes from God. The psalmist in Psalm 24.1 said it this way, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and, and all those that dwell in it. Basically, I've given you everything that you have. Everything that's in the earth is actually mine. I've given it to you for a time, but eventually, when you're gone, it's not yours anymore. It doesn't matter that you had it for that period of time unless you do something significant and meaningful with it. So we may have temporary control over certain things, over wealth, or over property, or over a business, but ultimately it's, it's, uh, it's only under our control for a short, very short period of time while we have it on earth. And in the end, we had possessions for the blink of an eye. It was never really ours to keep. Everything that is, is ultimately, ultimately belongs to Jesus, to God, the creator. He might entrust it to us for a time, but that doesn't, doesn't make it ours. And actually, Jesus taught about that in a parable where he talked about uh, three servants in Matthew 25, 14 to 30. And I would encourage you to go on and read that and look it up uh, when, you, when you go home. But basically what it is, is this, a master had three servants and he was going to be going away for a period of time. And he entrusted those servants with his finances, with his money. And he gave them each a sum of money. And it kind of went from a large sum of money for one to a smaller sum for another and then the smallest sum for the third. And uh, he went away. And his servants knew their master, and he knew what he expected of them. And the two that were given the most amount of money, they took their money, and they invested it wisely. And they got a significant return for their money. They actually doubled it. And when the master came back, he was, he was happy with what they'd done. He said, well done, my good and faithful servants. You know my heart. You know what I expected of you. He went to the third to see what the third had done, and to, to get his money back from the servant, the third servant. And the third servant knew his master as well. And he was worried about what would happen if he actually lost the money, if he didn't use it wisely. And so he hid it. I don't know, maybe he, hit, he said he hid it in the ground, but it would be similar to us putting money under our pillow, or under our mattress, or in your sock in a drawer, and not using it wisely. And, and when the master came back and he asked for, asked for what, the money back, and the servant gave him exactly what he was given, he said, you wicked servant, you knew what I expected of you, and you didn't do it. You knew that I entrusted you with something, and you squandered the opportunity to do something significant with it. And, and Christ might not have been necessarily talking about money. He might have been talking about, about general gifts that he gives us, whether it's a gift to serve or a gift to speak or a gift to, to, uh, to be compassionate. But he expects us to use whatever gift it is that he's given us and to further the kingdom with that, to do something significant with that. And for some of us, he's given us the ability to be wise with money, to make money, to, to take a little bit of money and to make more out of it. And what he expects from us is that when we do that, that we use it wisely to further the kingdom. He doesn't expect us to hide it under a pillow or to, to, to use it and squander it on ourselves. And so uh, Jesus' teaching about money there, I think, is very significant. And uh, Jesus, I think, told us that parable to teach us that while we've all been entrusted with resources, they're not ours to keep but they are ours to be responsible for. There's other, uh, some other examples from the New Testament that teach us about giving. The Gospels kind of capture some important lessons about money. And one of my favorite ones is the story in uh, Mark uh, 10, 17 to 27. And you might have heard of it re- referred to as 
the, 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 uh, the rich young ruler. And, this, and it goes like this. A, a, a rich young man came to Jesus, and he said to Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what you need to do is follow the commandments of the Old Testament. So don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, honor your parents. And, and the, the rich young man said, you know, I've, I've been able to do that. What else do I need to do? And Jesus said, if you've done those things, then, then what I want you to do is sell everything that you have. Sell your possessions, give the money to the poor, and come and follow me. And what do you think happened to that rich young man? Do you think he was able to do that? He turned away, and he left saddened. And it doesn't say why the rich young ruler, the rich young man, was saddened. But I think he was saddened because he wanted to follow Jesus, but not enough to give up his wealth and his possessions. He was so attached to what he had that it, that it came between him and, and Jesus. And he used this as, Jesus used this as a lesson for his disciples about how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. He said, in fact... It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus never said it was impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, and it's not impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, but it certainly is difficult. And the reason for that is this. When we have wealth, when we start off, you know, we start off living on our own, we have our first job, we make money, and... uh, you know, our hope is probably that we'll be able to pay our bills. And eventually our hope becomes that we'll be able to make just that little bit more so that we can be a little more secure. And if we're followers of Jesus, and when we start off and we have hope in Christ, and we, and we sing like we did this morning, Christ is all I need. Our hope is in Christ. But the more we start to rely on finances, the more we start to rely on our ability and put our hope in our ability to secure our own future with finances and with wealth, the more our hope starts to drift from Christ to our finances. And the reality is that in the end, if we continue to place our hope in finances, that finances actually end up stealing our hope. They end up robbing our hope from us. And it's not something that anyone, I think, would ever do intentionally. It's something that gradually creeps in. It's something that gradually takes over our heart. And it's something that eventually... Christ said in several other passages will eventually come between us. Christ said in uh, Matthew 6, 19 to 21, he said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Instead, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Why did he say that? Because he knows that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And so Christ wants us not to set our hope in our, on our treasure that we accumulate here on earth. He wants us to invest it in, in the kingdom and in the future that we have with him. He goes on to say, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. And you know, a lot of times we think of when it comes to serving two masters, we think it's either God or it's Satan. It's either God or it's, it's, uh, it's my addiction. It's either God or it's my family. Or it's either God or this. But what Christ said is not, it's, it's not God and Satan. That's a pretty obvious one. The one that steals our heart and that robs our hope is, is money. He said you cannot serve both God and money. 
there's not, very little else in the teaching of Jesus that speaks so strongly and so clearly about our complete life with him as, as followers of him. So I'm not, I'm not actually saying that, that wealth is bad. At one point in my life, uh, I probably read these verses and said, nobody should be rich, nobody should have wealth, everything that we have should, should go to the poor. And I was kind of young and idealistic at that point. But the truth is that God gave people the ability to generate wealth, to generate finances, so that those people could contribute with the gifts that he's given them to the kingdom of God. But what he wants us to be careful of is that that ability and that wealth doesn't become what we put our hope in, that, that, that it doesn't become what owns us. We own and use our wealth as a tool rather than our wealth owning us. And so more than anything else in life, I think it is finances that can subtly gain control. So that's kind of the why of, uh, of, of why we should give. How should we give? The New Testament gives us some really practical guidelines on how we should give. And the first is that when we, when we give, we should plan our giving. And the reason for that is because a lot of times we can hear people who are really persuasive talk about things that tug at our heartstrings. And, you know, we could give our money to, we could give all of our money to certain causes. And not that those are bad things to give our money to, but we should plan where we're going to give our finances to as well. And I'm not saying that giving to uh, tsunami relief or to famine relief or earthquake relief is bad. Those are definitely good things that we can contribute towards. But what, what Scripture teaches is that we should plan our giving and that over and above that we can give to certain causes. And... Um, in 1 Corinthians 16:2, Paul wrote a letter to the, uh, the Corinthian church, and he was instructing uh, the believers there on a plan for giving. And he said quite a few things that I think we could take out of this passage. He says, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with, with your income. Save it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. And so when we give, Paul says that we should plan to give. You set aside the money at the beginning of the week, and that's actually a plan. It requires some thinking ahead and some budgeting and some, you know, it, it requires us to think of where our money was going. It should, he said it, it, it shouldn't be, and so our, plan, our giving shouldn't be in response to an emotional plea. And the reason for that is because that can take us one of either two ways. We can hear a persuasive talk about something, and we can give our money to, something, to someone who's a really great persuasive teacher, and, and they, you know, they might not use our money the wisest, and, and, and uh, we might end up not giving our money to the best cause. But on the other extreme, <clears throat> we might simply not give because conveniently, you know what, the Holy Spirit just didn't tug at my heart to, to give today. And while the Spirit can tug at our hearts to give and instruct us on what we should give, I can guarantee you that most of the time when you have money in your pocket, probably the the, the first thing that you're not, not going to think of is that the Holy Spirit's calling me to give that money in my pocket. And so we should plan what it is that we're going to give. And then if we feel like over and above that, the Spirit is calling us to give more, and He may do that, then absolutely, I think that's something that we can give to. But we need to, we need to ensure that we plan to give. Another thing we need to do is make giving a priority. And there's another principle for giving that we can take out of this passage. And uh, Paul encouraged the believers to give on the first day of every week, making their giver, giving a priority in their budget. And the reason for that is because 
in that day, in that time, people would have either been um, paid at the end of each working day, or they would have been paid at the end of the week. And they wouldn't have gone out <clears throat> on the weekend buying their groceries and, you know, buying food for their mules and whatever. They would have waited till the beginning of the week, and that's when they would have started spending that money. And so Paul was telling them, at the very beginning of the week, make it a priority. Make giving a priority in your life. And too often, I think it's easy for us to make giving an afterthought. You know, we, uh, Sunday's kind of the end of the week for us, and by the time we've, we've uh, paid our mortgage payment, and we've paid hydro, and we've paid uh, the heating bill, and we bought our groceries, and we bought gas for the, for the car to go back and forth to work, and we've made a dozen Tim Hortons runs during the week, then kind of what we're left over with is what we think, think about uh, giving to God. And what Paul is saying is that what you need to do is set aside that money of the giving, at the beginning of the week and make that a priority. We also need to make giving regular and consistent. Paul instructs us to believers to give, the believers to give weekly, when the, and kind of in conjunction with when it is that they're being paid. And then Paul instructs believers in another passage, in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, to give prayerfully. Everyone should give what they have decided to give in their heart. And so we ask the Holy Spirit, this is what I have. Everything that I have is yours. What is it that you want me to give back to you for a specific purpose? And so once again, there's no specific percentage amount or uh, a financial amount that the New Testament give, instructs believers to give. But what Paul implies in his teaching is that we should give carefully and prayerfully think through what it is that we plan to give. And what Paul says here as well is, is encouraging. He says that it, it, what he kind of alludes to is that our giving is a continuation of our worship. So when we give, it shouldn't be haphazardly or casually. It shouldn't be when the offering bags are passed around and someone sitting beside you gives you the nudge to open up your wallet and then pulls out a five or a ten, and that's what goes in the offering. It should be in sincere response, a sincere desire to give God the best of everything that we have. So another big question I think that we have to answer is where it is that we should give. It's easy to think when we come to church on Sunday, um, you know, it seems like every, all the bills are paid. Hopefully the pastor's paid and he's got food on his table and he can pay his bills. And it's easy to come in and, and it's nice and warm and cozy and the lights are on and we've got coffee and we've got snacks to eat. And it's easy to think, you know, well, that's all looked after. But oftentimes we don't really give it a, a second thought. We don't think, where does the money come from to pay the bills? Where does the money come from to keep the lights on and to, and to provide the how many cups of coffee was it that we drink a year? 15,000 cups of coffee that we drink a year at Kingsway. And so, you know, we have to answer the question, should I give to my local church? It seems like we're doing all right here, but should, should I give here? Should I give to my favorite charity? Should I give to another church that might be in need? Where is it should I, that I should give? And the New Testament actually teaches several things about where we should focus our giving. In the Old Testament, just to go back to the principle there, in the Old Testament, the Israelites were commanded to give to support their spiritual leaders and the people that looked after the temple. So essentially, it was like looking after the, their, their church of the day. And that's where they were required to give. In the, in the New Testament, that idea kind of carries over. Um, 
Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, 7 to 18. He says that, that those who preach and teach should actually be given double honor. Those who teach and who preach should be paid for their labor. So sometimes there's a lot of debate in the church over whether or not people who teach and preach in the church should, uh, should be tent makers or whether or not they should have a job that supports them during the week and then they lead a spiritual, a spiritual congregation or a church um, as well as that. And what Paul is saying is that you shouldn't muzzle those who lead you. You should pay them well and ensure that they are able to do what I've called them to do with all of their heart, with no distractions on the side. And so that requires that somebody, um, you know, helps to support that. In 1 Corinthians 9, 14, Paul gives like a very long, actually it's 9, but 14 sums it up. He gives an argument that those who work in full-time ministry should be paid for their work. And so, that, again, that, those finances need to come from somewhere. So in, in order for that to happen, we, we need to, to be sure that, that we direct some of our, our, of our wealth towards the local church. Um, many of Jesus' teachings about stewardship reflect the idea that, that we should use wisely the resources that we've been given to further the work of God on earth. So things like, like ministries that happen outside of the church. We're fortunate. And I, I don't teach this because... Um, I think that, you know, we're doing poorly in the area of giving. Um, I think we're so fortunate at Kingsway that we've been able to give a substantial amount of our budget to help support ministries that otherwise wouldn't be able to carry on. Ministries that are crucial in our area. Things like the, the Haldeman Pregnancy Care Center. Things like the, uh, the, the food bank. And then over and above that, we're able to help meet the needs of people that, that called Kingsway home when, you know, maybe the finances fall short in a given month. Right? We're able to ensure that, that Pastor Mark can go and visit people who are shut-ins and visit people who, who are in need and visit people in the hospital and ensure that he's able to care for their spiritual needs on a day-to-day -day basis and help ensure that, that their physical needs are met as well. And so that's a one blessing, one amazing blessing that comes from what, what we're able to give. And we're also able to, to, to further the work of the kingdom in different areas around the world. And so... I, Again, I I'd encourage you and thank you so much for your, for, your, for your generosity to Kingsway. But I'm sure that you've probably also noticed, and this morning is not typical, but we're kind of busting at the seams at Kingsway. We've had to buy a portable so that our kids could actually have a safe place to, uh, to have kids ministry. Um, we had the fire marshal come in and the fire marshal said, you know, probably too many little kids running around downstairs. We need a place for them to meet that's safe. And so we have, a, we have a portable so that they can meet there. At some point, if we continue to grow because we're doing what it is that we believe God has called us to do, to love our community, to love our neighbors, and to love life, to love him, if we continue to do what it is he's, he, we believe he's called us to do, to, to make believers out of the people that, that we live with, that we work with and that we play with, and to make disciples of the people that call Kingsway home. If we're going to continue to do that, and we believe he's called us to do that, and we believe that if we do what he's called us to do, he will make a way for that to happen. Regardless of how much any of you give, we believe he'll continue to ensure if, if we're doing what he's called us to do, that that will continue to be able to happen. But in order for that to happen, and if we continue to grow, we need to think about what's going to happen at some point. Do we need to hire more staff so that we can have more services, 
so that we don't run the pastor down into the ground? Do we need to look at expanding the size of the building or buying a new building so we have a place for everyone to meet? What is it that we need to look at doing, and how on earth is that going to happen? We totally trust in God that if we're doing what he's called us to do, he will ensure that that happens. But part of that will come through the generosity of the people that call Kingsway home. And so many of the teachings throughout the New Testament speak on the fact that when we give, we should give generously as well to support orphans and widows and those in need. And part of what you give goes towards that, and it's a huge blessing. So what should we give? And here's one of the big questions that a lot of people have about giving. What is it that I should give? Do I follow the Old Testament commands to give a tithe? And you know what? Probably most of us have heard of the tithe at some point, and that may, may be a great starting point for some of us, is to work towards giving a tithe. For, the, for others, giving a tithe is probably a little bit of a joke because you could afford to give 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 percent without it even causing you any concern or worry whatsoever. And so we need to think about what it is that God has called us to give. So in the Old Testament, uh, people were commanded to give a tenth of their possessions to help maintain the temple and to pay the priests. And most people, if they plan, if we planned wisely with our finances, most of us could probably give 10%. If you can't, I, I guarantee, if you couldn't live on 90% of what you make, you probably couldn't live on 100%. So if you struggle with that, then maybe a tithe isn't exactly what you need. If you think, and uh, there's statistics on what the, the general churches, the Protestant church across North America gives, the average giving in a church is somewhere between 2 and 3% of people's income. And so a, a target for some of us might be, you know what, if that's average, maybe I should double that. Maybe that's where I should start. Maybe I should look at 10. Maybe I should look at more. But uh, ultimately, we need to, what we need to do is, uh, is ask God what he's called us to give, prayerfully consider it. But several of the New Testament authors give um, an example for those that are able to give proportionate to our income. And so you might remember the account in Luke 21, 1 to 4. It's uh, re often referred to as the account of the widow's might. When Jesus, he kind of, he took his disciples and they were sitting at the entrance to the temple and they were probably being a little bit snoopy, kind of spying on people and watching what they were giving. And as people went in, they noticed what people were giving. And Jesus paid particular attention to one lady who was a widow, who he, noticed, he knew was a widow, and gave two mites. And, and uh, if you want to give, if you want to know what the equivalent to that would have been in terms of a salary at that point in time, two mites would have been about six minutes worth of earnings of the average worker at that point in time. Six minutes worth. So it wasn't a lot of money by any stretch of the imagination. But Jesus commended the widow for giving what she gave because he knew that proportionately, that was a significant amount for her. He said she gave what she had to live on. Meanwhile, others who could have easily afforded much more than 10% than of their income only gave what was required. So most of the New Testament teaching on giving leads towards not giving 10%, but giving what you're able to give. 1 Timothy 6, 17-19 says that, that those who are rich in this world... And if you think about the statistics that we talked about earlier, if you make $35,000 or more, you're in the top 4% of earners in the world. If you make over $50,000, you are in the top 1%. There's no way that in this world we couldn't consider ourselves rich. Those who are rich in this world should give not 10%, but give generously. And what that means, 
will totally vary from person to person. Obviously, those who live on a fixed income, who already have a strained budget, won't be able to give as much. But according to Jesus and Paul, there's still an expectation to give. And the reason for that is because where our money is, that's where our hearts go. If we give towards the local church, then that's where our hearts will be. And that is one big reason why when it comes to giving, I would encourage you, if you call Kingsway home, to give to Kingsway. Because when you give to the local church, that's where your heart will be. And our, our goal and our desire for everyone who is here is to be a part, to feel a part of what is happening at Kingsway, to feel, feel a part of the ministry of what's happening. And if you're only here and sit here in a pew on Sunday mornings, you're going to be here, but you're not going to feel as fully a part of what's going on as you could. And so if we take this principle to heart, probably a, a number of us should be able to give radically above a tithe or 10% that we often hear about. And so the last thing that, that I want to talk about is, is who should give. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16 too, he said, on the first day of every week, each one of you. He didn't single out people who are wealthy. He didn't single out the widows who could only give two mites. He didn't single out anybody. He said everyone should give or set aside a sum of money in keeping with their income. And so Paul clearly teaches that all believers are expected to give. And so that's kind of the who, what, when, where, and why. And I know now you're probably thinking, great, here's kind of the drop-dead thing. Now what's Mark going to ask us to do? So in front of you, in the pew in front of you, there's a, I'm just kidding, there's no card in the pew in front of you. I am not going to ask you to commit to give a certain percent. What I am going to ask you to do is when you go home today, when you go home this week, look at some of those passages that we talked about. Look at some of the passages that we referred to. Read through them. Prayerfully consider them. And think about, think about in terms of your giving and your finances, where it is that you're giving, what it is that you're giving, why it is that you're giving. And I don't ask you to do that because we want to pay the pastor more money, although that would be nice. I don't ask you to do that because it would be nice to have um, Starbucks coffee or better snacks at the back that might be nice. I don't know. I, I like the snacks. Um, I don't ask you to do that because, because we want to build a bigger church. I don't ask you to do that for any reason other than because of what Jesus taught, that our, where our money is, there our hearts will be also. And my goal and my desire and my prayer for each one of you is that your heart would be fully committed to Christ, that we could say, like we sang this morning, that Christ is all I need, that my hope is fully in Christ. It's not in my finances. It's not in my ability to make a secure future for myself. It's not in my ability to amass wealth. Because at the end, when we're dead and we meet God in heaven, he's not going to say, good job, you left the most money behind. He's going he's gonna to look at what you've done with what you've been given, and he's going to praise you for that. And so my hope and my desire for you is that <clears throat> your heart would be in the right place. So let me just, let me pray for you before we, before we dismiss. Lord, we thank you that you have blessed us to live in a country and a nation that is, is so well off. We have more than what we need looked after. We have health care. Most of us can easily um, have food on the table and pay our rent. Sometimes it might be a, a bit of a stretch for some, but 
we're, we're nowhere as poor off as some countries are. And we thank you that you have blessed us in that way. And my prayer this morning is that um, <clears throat> we wouldn't put our hope in what it is that we're able to amass and the wealth that we're able to create. My hope is that we use whatever it is that you've given us, whether it be an ability to serve you, an ability to make money, whatever it is that we commit that entirely to you and we use that to further your kingdom and that as we do that our hearts would be drawn closer to you that our hope would be fully in you because we know that when we do that you give us in abundance and it may not be an abundance of finances or possessions but it's an abundance of joy and of hope and of peace and of love and that's what you've called us to so we thank you it's in your name we pray and we love you. Amen.